This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communications. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Broadcasting from Emerson College's School of Communication in Boston, Massachusetts, Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Exploring ideas such as multimedia storytelling, media ethics, and how new technologies are affecting the communication industry. In this episode, we'll talk with Kevin Mitchell, an accomplished senior executive with over 20 years of success across entertainment, music, film, television, video, online media, gaming, and theatrical exhibition. After achieving several Grammy Award nominations and winning a Billboard Award as a music executive, Mitchell transitioned into the immersive experience sector of the entertainment business to adapt to the explosive shift in technology disrupting consumer consumption behaviors. This passion for convergence led Kevin to become one of the first driving forces to bring esports and the business of competitive video gaming into the classrooms of the sports communication department at Emerson College. Kevin Mitchell, welcome to Campus on the Common. Now, you're an adjunct professor at Emerson College School of Communication. Your specialty is esports. What exactly is esports? Esports is essentially competitive video gaming. And it's evolved from uh, a passive experience that's taken place in the home to now becoming a spectator sport uh, that's evolved into uh, a worldwide phenomenon. And it's essentially taking the entertainment industry by storm. Uh, there's massive growth taking place, and a lar- it's largely driven by technology. Broadband technology, cloud-based technology has allowed gamers to connect uh, and play and compete in a competitive marketplace that's tracked and managed through platforms. And it allows a kid in Texas to play another kid in India or a kid in New York to play someone in Los Angeles. And it's essentially evolved into organized competitions. Now, when you say platform, what exactly do you mean by that? There are platforms, uh, for example, uh, Challenge. Challenge is an automated platform that allows competitive players to sign up and register under a particular gaming title and find other talent that's willing to play. Sometimes it may uh, give you an assessment of that particular player's talent level, and it allows you to schedule the match, uh, to monitor the scoring, uh, to set rules. Uh, So it's an easy, simplified way for people to find competition in the open marketplace. Sometimes they're organized by respective members of people that may know each other. It could be organized by school, by region, and sometimes it's just random play. For PCs, it's generally taken place through online platforms. Through consoles, there are services like with the Xbox, for example, Xbox Live. It allows you to pay a subscription fee to be able to have access to other gamers in the Xbox community. And it's all categorized by the gaming titles. So when you say PC, I assume you're talking about perhaps a laptop versus something like the Wii or one of the other the other devices. Yes. The games are largely played either through a personal computer, through a console like an Xbox, uh, a Wii, um, or PlayStation, and also uh, on mobile phones. 
So mobile esports is one of the fastest growing sectors, and it's exploding in Asia. And uh, if you've heard of the recent phenomenon Fortnite, one of the things that largely uh, helped it to really scale at a rapid pace was the ability to play on your phone and play with other members that are on a personal computer or on a console. Now, so, for, for the viewer that's on ignition, that's not familiar with Fortnite, yes. this is what type of game? Well, it's essentially Hunger Games. Uh, you have 100 players that are all... Uh, the game starts out where you're flying through... It looks like an airplane, but it's really a bus. And you have to jump out of the bus as if you're parachuting. And then you have to land on an island with 99 other players. And your job is to find a weapon and survive. So you use various tactics, strategies to be able to be the last man standing or woman standing. And the last person standing is the winner of the game. So just so that I'm clear, this is a game I know my teenage sons used to play. I'd come home and there they'd be on the couch playing. Is this the same sport but organized into teams and into leagues? Fortnite is, is rather unique because most esports titles are one versus one, meaning one player versus another player, or three versus three, or five versus five. This is essentially different because it's one versus 99. They do have the ability to do groups where you could be a group of four players that are playing 25 other groups. So it's slightly different, and that's one of the challenges in relation to scaling it as an esport is because generally, you know, esport experience is largely driven by spectator viewing, very similar to, to, to traditional sports. You know, it has to have an ability to entertain an audience through, you know, watching star players and watching highlights and being able to understand the action that's taking place. With Fortnite, essentially, you could have a champion or a top player who lands and he may be terminated minutes upon, you know, uh, entry to the to the game and landing on the island. And then all of a sudden, from a spectator standpoint, who do you follow? You know, do you follow a random guy who nobody has any type of emotional attachment to? Or do you follow the guy that has, you know, the best ability to survive? So there are challenges in terms of following norms and customs because there isn't any defined protocol for what is determined to be an eSport. It generally has to have a competitive structure. Generally, there's some kind of a prize that's obtained. Uh, generally, there's technology involved, whether it's live streaming broadcasts or tournament management technology. But um, a lot of it has to do with the gaming publishers and how they decide to support the communities. Because a lot of the communities have their own leagues, uh, some have professional franchises, very similar to the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball. So a lot of it is driven by how the publishers view esports because essentially it was started as a marketing channel and it's evolved into a highly competitive network of organized events. Now, when you look at these publishers, what are some of the titles that make up esports? We, we talked about Fortnite. Are there others? Yes. The, the most popular game in the world is called League of Legends. And League of Legends, just to give you a comparison, uh, the World Championship last year had 100 million people watching via live stream. So 
those are essentially Super Bowl type numbers. Now, this is a hundred million, a hundred million people Globally. worldwide yes. watching at the same time. Absolutely. And that's all through mobile PCs, uh, you know, iPads, devices that's streamed. So it wasn't conventional television. This was all done via live stream. Amazing. Amazing. Yes. So what are some of the other titles? You just talked about that one. Are there are there are there others that are not as popular that are growing in popularity? Are there others yes. that have teams and leagues and, and publishers and supporters and, and sponsors, etc.? Yes, there's a new game that's uh, about two years old called Overwatch. And that has evolved into a professional franchise league. Uh, local uh, Patriot owner Robert Kraft invested upwards of $20 million to secure the rights to the Boston franchise that he owns. They're called the Boston Uprising. There's currently 20 teams placed throughout the world. Uh, they're on their second year, and they've experienced enormous growth. Uh, there's another game called Counter-Strike, or CSGO for short, largely popular. It's, it, it's called a, a fighting game because it's essentially bad guys against good guys, but from a militaristic terrorist versus, uh, you know, uh, I guess you would say special forces type of uh, you know combat activity, uh, super popular. That's actually broadcast on TBS Turner Networks. Um, there's another one called uh, Super Smash Brothers, and that's essentially the old Donkey Kong and Pokemon and a bunch of other characters that were licensed into. Uh, it's called a fighting game, and essentially. There are two characters that have a bunch of moves uh, and special powers, and they essentially fight against each other. Super popular. Uh, it became even more popular because Nintendo released a new console called the Switch, and it's exploded in terms of growth. Uh, and the unique thing about Super Smash is they had an old model that wasn't able to be played through connective technology and through tournament technology as it relates to platforms like the Xbox and PlayStation 2. So a lot of the activity on the competitive side was organized by essentially kids. So they had everything from leagues, structures, uh, regions. They had rankings for players. They even had a governing board that would essentially create the rules for the league. And this is all done independent of any publisher or any formal organization coming in to regulate it. And it was so progressive that one of the top members of this board even gave up his seat to allow a female member to come on to make sure that you know they were respecting all you know diversity and inclusion rights and and being able to have uh, you know a unanimous voice in terms of how the game would be governed. So it's it's an excellent case study to show how just the the fear I guess the fervor and the 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 drive of you know the audience essentially created this professional, you know, an organized structure independent of any real oversight and governing body. It really is amazing. So this started essentially by kids getting together online or, yes. or through a device, organizing yes. leagues. And then later, somebody in the entertaining sports or entertainment business took a look at this and said, hey, we can monetize this. Is that is that a fair observation? Yeah, because essentially it, it started out with kids at Stanford just trying to find ways to connect their PCs and play with each other because they were all at home and there wasn't much of a communal experience. You know, you can only fit so many guys in a basement, you know, mom before mom would get a little upset. So they started to organize in different venues and campus, you know, community rooms and uh, small high schools. And eventually they would start to create prize pools where 
each participant would pay 10 bucks to play. And then whoever won the tournament would take the top prize. And then there would be a second place and a third place prize. And then eventually you started to get a lot of people that wanted to see this competitive activity. And the spectator audience was largely made up of other gamers and players that wanted to watch or just fans that were interested in kind of being around the experience because the experience is it's beyond what you see at a football game or a traditional sport. There's really a lot of unique qualities that take place at a live event. There's costumes, there's uh, people with specific uh, interests and affinity for particular characters in the game. And they all have certain types of uh, affinities, if you will, for different sectors of the game. There's also uh, other activity related to, you know, groups making, uh, you know, their own rankings, uh, as I touched on earlier, and finding ways to determine who was the best at particular styles of, of play. So really in-depth experience that helped esports to really grow. So in addition to it becoming a huge phenomenon online and through live streaming, it's also become uh, a major activity uh, in the live uh, event space. Now with the live event space, Emerson College is, and, and your particular department, esports, has been involved locally with some major happenings that have occurred within the esports domain. Could you tell us about some of the activities that you that you and your students have participated in regarding esports? Yeah, well, uh, we're very fortunate because Boston has been a hotbed of investment activity, and three out of the four professional teams have all invested uh, in esports franchises. Uh, one in particular was the Kraft Group, the owners of the New England Patriots. Uh, they have a team, Boston Uprising, as I noted earlier, with Overwatch, and they had some difficulty with understanding how to develop local experiences and how to manage events because there's a certain technique and style that is is it, that has to be applied in order to create uh, a competitive landscape. Everything from understanding how the rules are set up for a particular match how you get uh, the entry participants to participate in online versions of the matches. And then it whittles down, similar to a March Madness, March Madness type of bracket, into uh, the four remaining teams to, to participate in a live championship event. So there was a lot of complexity in terms of the Patriots being able to identify which teams at which schools could play what are the rules? What do they look like? How to organize and manage an online tournament? How to do marketing strategies? How to organize all the complexities of the game and create a live experience? Now, so, now putting that whole event together, is that sure. something the actual Emerson students were involved with? Absolutely. We were involved at every level from production to branding to uh, helping to create the competitive framework to giving all of the craft group team high-level insight as it relates to how to space out the actual matches and how to identify players and how to create prize pools and how to create awareness, how to incorporate the live broadcast. So a lot of Emerson's core strengths as it relates to journalism, media, marketing, branding, uh, communicative studies, all those tools were applied to the point where we played an integral part of the production of this event, which was the first event of its kind throughout the Overwatch League. And it even resulted from one of my students who graduated getting hired by the craft group. 
So, wow. Yeah. So they're actually they are now professionally involved with the esport ecosystem. Esports and their other franchises, the NFL and uh, MLS. That's amazing. Now, when yeah. you look at the esport ecosystem from a parent's perspective, yeah, I would come home, I'd see my kids gaming on the sofa. But what you're talking about is taking this to a whole new level where a lot of the skills that Emerson College is especially um, strong in are actually being applied in a professional venue. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that led me to want to become an adjunct professor was really to help train and identify a skilled uh, workforce that really didn't exist. This industry is very new and there really wasn't any precedent in terms of curriculum or structure that existed. So I work with uh, Dr. Payne and several others at the sports communications program uh, to create a curriculum from scratch that addressed all the needs of these emerging companies looking to fill positions. Uh, again, broadcast journalism, uh, content creation, brand management, uh, strategy, uh, public relations, all those roles that you see in the traditional sports world, in addition to technologically driven roles, big data analytics, uh, all these positions have evolved from this uh, amazing industry that's expected to reach 1.5 billion in revenue growth this year in North America. 1.5 billion dollars. That is correct. That is amazing. Now, if I'm understanding what you're saying, the program we have here at Emerson College isn't so much about learning how to play a game, it's how to manage the event, how to work within that business, how to develop the special skills that are unique to this industry. Absolutely. It's the gameplay elements are uh, a part of it in, in terms of understanding the ethos and the and the structure and the functionality of esports and gaming leagues. Uh, and it's also a social activity. Emerson has a very uh, highly skilled uh, esports team that actually uh, made it to the final four in that uh, Overwatch competition. So we do have a strong presence in terms of competitive video gaming, but it's really to understand the aesthetics of the industry and how it interoperates with the conventional sports industry, the media industry, uh, how brands are now engaging and trying to identify the best ROI and how they can create new you know, publicity strategies and new marketing campaigns and ways to engage consumers and understanding the technological landscape that's evolving that's helping to drive the business. So if just so I'm clear and, and I understand, what it sounds like if you want to be involved professionally in the esports league, working for the craft group or one of the publishers, it sounds like it's almost mandatory that you have some form of formal training at a collegiate level. Is that an accurate Absolutely. situation? Absolutely. It, it is essential because there are a lot of nuances uh, that are applied that's best to kind of you know, take an experiential approach and, and take a, a hands-on learning type of uh, understanding to be able to, you know, have real life experience that will combine with the, you know, academic, you know, uh, process here at Emerson and be able to combine and, uh, you know, to converge those skills and to be able to become a competitive uh I guess you would say graduate, and we've been very successful prior to the the, the explosion of the esports industry. We've placed a good six to seven uh, graduates that are working now for high profile esports companies in Los Angeles, uh, in New York, and in Boston. Now, I've heard within esports there are well, there's organized teams, but there's there's also celebrity teams, if you will. Yes. So we've heard about Phase Clan and other groups like that. Yeah. What is Phase Clan, and how does that part of this industry work? 
Well, it's interesting. FaZe Clan uh, was essentially a bunch of gamers that were very popular social media influencers. So they essentially gamed and created video content through YouTube that became so engaging that they started to build these massive followings. And, and as it stands, they are the most popular esports team in the world. They have multiple members that have uh, 10 plus million followers. Uh, they've also got other affiliates, uh, one in particular called the Clout Gang that uh, consists of other non-gamers. And they, uh, as a block, are close to, I would say, close to the hundred of millions of impressions in terms of social media with Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. And they've really mastered uh, the part of the business that everyone's been striving to achieve. And that's the star quality, the content creation, the, the type of subject matter that could translate into popular culture and traditional media. And they've been very successful in that front. And they've largely been focused uh, in the fighter community, which is essentially, uh, you know, games uh, like Call of Duty. Uh, they're very big in Fortnite now, uh, Rainbow Six. So they're they're centric to those particular styles of games, but they're very innovative, charismatic individuals. Uh, it was started out of Boston, and now it's evolved to have members that are affiliated with NFL teams, uh, very popular music artists. Uh, so FaZe Clan is essentially... Uh, uh, I think they're a very unique collective because most of the esports teams now are trying to, or they're struggling with trying to define uh, how to build star players and how to build up uh, these massive social media followings and able to drive merchandise sales and content views and so on. And FaZe Clan has mastered that almost, uh, you know, without even really having a strategy. It's something that just evolved. And because of their strong character and charisma and their ability to master all channels of social media influence, they've been able to dominate and really have a presence that almost eclipses the rest of the esports industry. So we've talked about how FaZe Clan has built an amazing following within social media. And you touched on it briefly in terms of, of product sales, but how do they actually monetize all those click-throughs? Well, there's a number of you know ad-related revenue streams. And they could be, uh, they get paid for mentioning products. Uh, they could get revenue shares on YouTube where any ad that showed during any of their views, they split with YouTube. And this is a status that's very hard to achieve that YouTube only gives to followers that have uh, a million plus that are constantly creating content and have large audiences. So that's a another way. They also have tournament winnings because they've got the top two, uh, out of the top three Fortnite players, they have two of them and they have been winning tournaments and winning half a million dollar prize pools, uh, generating revenue through Call of Duty. They've also have uh, an international presence. So they've been winning tournaments. They've also get sponsorship dollars from, you know, clothing, uh, it could be beverages, uh, uh, car companies. They are really breaking the ceiling in terms of uh, anything that you're starting to see uh, a high degree of social influence, whether it's uh, lifestyle and packaged goods, um, uh, TV shows. Uh, last week, uh, I had a conversation with one of the executives and he, and he mentioned that one of the members was paid by Netflix to announce Bird Box. 
And I thought that that was, you know, uh, unique. And I didn't think that that was where this whole market was going, but uh, it was fascinating to hear. But they're, they're now starting to really monetize their influence. Yeah. So they're able to essentially leverage their celebrity status within a yes. particular genre and then, you know, push, yeah. the, push the social media and build those click-throughs and oh, that makes complete sense. Now, yeah. what's the role of the publisher, the actual game publisher in this ecosystem? Well, the publishers have a very unique relationship and the best way to kind of summarize it is if uh, Abner Doubleday, when he created baseball, if he was able to essentially control all the rights related to baseball, from the uniforms, the the bases, the uh, the bat, the bats, the hats, the balls. If he was essentially able to own every license or any type of uh, intellectual property related to baseball, okay, and anyone who wanted to play baseball had to pay him. If anybody wanted to buy a baseball bat, they would have to pay him or a hat or so on. That is the best way to summarize. The kind of control that a publisher has. Publishers essentially create the intellectual property or the game, and they control every aspect of it. Who plays it? If you could play it online, if you could set up a large event, you know, if you want to create a professional league or a structure, um, anything related to that game is controlled by the publisher. Some are very restrictive and they want to control everything similar to Apple does with their ecosystem. Others are less flex, uh, more flexible, less restrictive, similar to Android where it's open source. Others have taken a hands-off approach like Nintendo and the Smash example. They essentially let the kids control all the competitive play, set up the rules and the brackets until they saw that it was such a massive community and that there was a way to integrate it to help drive sales for their consoles. Then they started to pay attention to it. And now they're trying to gradually implement rules and help to support the leagues. So publishers are essentially the sun and the rest of us are kind of the solar system that kind of revolve around it. So with Overwatch and the other sports, we have... We have collegiate teams, we have professional teams, we have individuals banding together. What do you see as the future of esports? Where will this evolve in the next few years? And if you're a young person, how do you get involved with that? Very good question. Uh, I see the evolution of esports as being very similar to traditional sports in the sense where you have your professional league structure, you have your collegiate marketplace now starting to evolve. It still has to go through a, uh, a number of growth pains related to standardization structure, uh, dealing with uh, NCAA related issues uh, with amateur status and so on, and finding a way to govern the collegiate space because of the role of a publisher. It's a lot different than basketball because they generally don't have to deal with you know, any rights usage related to basketball, football, very similar to the Olympics where every publisher has a different set of rules. So the way that it's managed uh, and administered has to be set up differently than conventional sports. But in terms of youth engagement and involvement, I foresee esports uh, expanding beyond physical sports because, you know, take me, for example, uh, I, I wasn't blessed with the physical attributes to be able to play uh, varsity football. But uh, I'm rather good at competing with Madden and, uh, you know, EA's version of football. So I think the barrier to entry will be lowered 
And I think that you'll find uh, the, I guess, the attraction and non-physical related uh, injuries and CTE and things like that. Uh, just uh, as long as they find a way to uh, institute physical, um, I guess, endurance and, and aptitude to, to help the sedentary, I guess, lifestyle and to make sure that kids remain active, I foresee esports surpassing all conventional sports. Every year, a new game could come out with a separate community that uh, turns into a nationwide phenomenon. Two years ago, Fortnite didn't exist. Now, the company is making $100 million a month in revenue, and it's all the rage. All the kids are playing it, um, men and women. And that could essentially happen with esports uh, on a continuous basis. Uh, so I think there, there, there's a lot of hope for the future. I think there's a lot of parallels in terms of uh, collaboration, to your point, um, team building, well, yeah, let's, strategy. Let's, let's, so let's take a little bit of a deeper dive. What would be some of the, if we were to compare esports with physical sports, what are some of the commonalities and what are some of the differences? I think uh, strategy, teamwork, uh, collaboration, uh, trust building, I think, uh, is important. Um, just, I think, cohesive uh, team dynamics and uh, all the things that are built into teams being able to kind of gel, if you will, or work together in unison to accomplish a goal. Uh, I think all those elements translate into esports. But also, and this is based on just the numbers, I also think that this could enhance uh, like STEM-related skills, for example. 72% of League's, League of Legends players in college come from STEM or engineering backgrounds in so, majors. And for those who are not familiar with the term STEM? Yes. Science, technology, math, all those skills that are not as cool, uh, you know, to the to the general population, but highly in demand. So I think esports will drive a higher uh, technological aptitude for students to make it more cool. Uh, something that was perceived to be, you know, uh, nerdy or geeky is now cool. And it's something that can help support that industry. So I think there's a lot of inclusion uh, opportunities for women as well, uh, for people of color that could break the barriers. Uh, you know, the golf club is definitely, you know, the social stratification affects who's in the golf club because who can pay to golf and who could pay to go skiing. So with video games, it's a, there's a lower bar to entry, you know, in terms of economic conditions, um, proximity. You know, I could live in a very bad area, but I could still play someone who's in, uh, you know, a high uh, economic zip code. So I think there's a lot of benefits uh, related to that. Fantastic. Kevin Mitchell, eSports, any final thoughts? Well, I, I think it's something that uh, I'm hoping that the public really understands the narrative that this is no longer uh, kids eating Doritos and drinking Red Bull in basements, that this is an international phenomenon that's here to stay. Uh, people need to embrace it. Uh, it does have some of the same elements and concerns and that popular entertainment has in terms of violence and things like that, but there's a lot more layers to it. Uh, it could be used, again, to drive a lot of educational uh, planning and programming. Uh, it has all the elements that uh, physical sports has because, you know, studies show that 
kids who compete and play sports generally have uh, a higher degree of success in the workplace. And I think esports has all those common elements. And I think it's something that uh, people should really pay attention to. And if your children want to pursue a career, um, I, I would largely um, reinforce that there's a huge technological component. There's a lot of uh, social skill building, a lot of life skills as, uh, in addition to uh, business, uh, technology, marketing, uh, sociology, all the other skills that uh, one would get by sending their kid to a camp, you can achieve through eSports. We just spoke with Kevin Mitchell, one of the first eSports professors in the US. As an industry insider, Kevin helped design an eSport-focused curriculum within Emerson College's Sports Communication Department. This is Campus on the Common, the broadcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss our next exciting episode. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of Communication Studies, Mark Brody, and this has been Campus on the Common.